Good morning. Welcome here. Good to be with you guys as we, uh, in some ways, conclude uh, this portion of our Shalom series. Uh, It will officially conclude on Easter weekend, uh, next weekend, as we bring it uh, all together. And uh, as Pastor Kendall said, uh, as we conclude that next week, we'll have 10 a.m. service on Good Friday and 9 and 11. Uh, And so we've been talking about this idea of Shalom for uh, coming on 13 weeks. Easter will be 14 uh, weeks. And it is uh, a significant word, and that's why we spent so much time on it. It uh, it has made its way into our vision statement. Uh, So our mission at Sun was to guide all people into a lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ, an authentic lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ. Our vision statement uh, is to see uh, shalom breakers becoming shalom makers. And with uh, the shalom uh, word taking up two words in that vision statement, it's, it ought to uh, make sense to us uh, as we imagine and dream about what God has for us as a community, what he's inviting us into. Uh, and it is not an English word, it's a Hebrew word, uh, and it's often translated as peace in our scriptures, uh, but it means far more than peace as we often understand it. We, often when we think about peace, uh, we have a very shallow understanding of what that means, and we often think people just getting along, uh, the absence of co- conflict. Uh, but when the scriptures speak about shalom, it's speaking of the way things ought to be, the way things were created to be, the longing uh, that we actually have as human beings to see this world and ourselves function and thrive in a certain uh, type of way. Uh, and so shalom articulates this right relationship with God uh, this right relationship with, that we have with ourselves, being secure in our identity and who we are, uh, the right relationship we have with other human beings, and then uh, the right relationship that we have in creation. Uh, and so shalom breaking has happened. You look at the world around us, uh, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that something has gone wrong, uh, that something's gone amiss. The Bible calls the sin uh, the breaking of shalom. Uh, but the Bible doesn't only talk about the breaking of shalom, it talks about uh, the, the shalom project that God has to bring all things uh, back together. And so we've been talking about shalom with the world as the fourth part of this series. And, uh, and again, the world, when we translate it in English, uh, uh, sounds very simple, uh, but in the biblical understanding of the word, the Greek word is cosmos, uh, it means three things. And so the first is the world is creation. Uh, and so when we look around the created world, the universe, the cosmos, as we, uh, as we call it, uh, the world refers to that. Uh, the world also refers to humanity. It's used often in Scripture describing uh, people. Uh, so God loves the world. God came to save the world. And, uh, and so some, part of that means creation, but uh, the emphasis is often on humanity, on actual people. And then uh, the Scripture talks about the world in a negative sense. Uh, and the world, uh, in the third sense, is the world as corporate flesh. And as we've talked about lots in the series, the biblical idea of flesh is kind of these animalistic, uh, strong desires that we have that aren't in and of themselves evil, uh, but when they're left unchecked, when they're not submitted uh, to God's plan for us and for the world, uh, they, can actually, uh, they can actually be very destructive for ourselves and for others. Uh, and so the Bible contrasts these strong fleshly desires uh, with deep desires, or what Paul refers to as walking by the Spirit. So that's just a quick recap uh, of where we've been. And so we create structures 
in our world to protect ourselves from our flesh, uh, both us as individuals, but also us in terms of the worldly sense, the corporate flesh. And so when you look at the world around us, the structures, the communities, the institutions, uh, we as humans, we create laws and we have order, we have traditions, we have uh, social conventions, we create uh, governance and uh, ways to govern ourselves, protect ourselves. Uh, we build militaries and borders to protect ourselves from other groups of people uh, that are the evil outside of us, the fleshly world outside of us. We actually uh, create legal systems and police systems to help uh, keep in check uh, the evil inside of us. Uh, and so there's, there's consequences for, for living and uh, living out those fleshly desires in certain ways. Uh, and so we intuitively, as a society, as a culture, create these checks and balances because we are aware, whether we're people of faith or not, uh, that the human flesh left unchecked can be very destructive. But what happens over time uh, is that even those systems, those structures that we put in place uh, aren't neutral. They're, they're not even exempt from those fleshly desires. And that's what the world, what, that's what the Bible refers to as the world and the corporate flesh sense, that the political systems, the power systems, uh, the things that we put in place to protect us can actually turn on us uh, at some point uh, and become more harmful than helpful. Uh, And so we have these systems that we've created in our world uh, that we thought were going to help us, and at times and in certain seasons they have, uh, but when even those systems are left unchecked, they can become hurtful and harmful as well. So we have the cycle that emerges. Our nations, our cultures, our places, our, our religions uh, are set up to push against the flesh, but at some point they seem to take on a type of flesh themselves. And these systems take on a life of their own and becoming destructive rather than protective forces. So what we're really talking about in a simple sense is religion and politics, if you want to say it simply. Uh, and, you know, if, if you've been to a family gathering uh, and you're sitting around the table, you know, and Uncle John uh, starts talking about politics, you know, this is the beginning of the awkward family moment. Uh, or religion, you know, politics and religion. There's kind of like this, <clears throat> this unspoken rule uh, that we can get along at family gatherings as long as we don't talk about politics and religion. Uh, and we can sometimes function... That way in church, too. Let's not talk about politics. Let's not talk about uh, religion in the negative sense. Uh, Yet Jesus uh, was very political. Uh, And he wasn't political in the worldly sense. uh, But what he stood for pushed against the religious institutions and the political institutions at the time. Uh, I've titled this morning's message, The Politics of Jesus. Uh, and there's a couple of books that are, are written with that title, uh, and these aren't referring to those books, uh, but uh, I think it's interesting when we think about Jesus in the political, religious atmosphere that he entered into the world uh, 2,000 years ago when he took on flesh, uh, that he didn't come into the world in this vacuum or this island, but he came into the world in a certain context uh, and it's actually important for us to understand that context, even as we reflect on Easter next week and what, what happened to Christ and his path to, to the cross and uh, what the crucifixion, the resurrection meant. Uh, his uh, political and religious world uh, had a major part to play in that narrative and how that uh, all rolled out. Uh, 
Uh, in John 18, we've kind of used this as a bit of a theme verse uh, in this section of the Shalom Project, when we talk about the Shalom with the world. Uh, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. And when it says, my kingdom is not of this world, the actual Greek word, the language of this text was originally written in, uh, is the word ek. And uh, this is often translated poorly because when we read the scriptures in this way, my kingdom is not of this world, we were almost uh, tempted to think that God's kingdom is somewhere else other than here. The faulty thinking becomes that the goal of God is actually to remove us from this world, to take us somewhere else. But God doesn't want to get us somewhere else. He actually wants us to live here under a different kind of rule. The Greek word ek literally means out of. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not out of this world. My kingdom is not born within this worldly way or worldly systems or worldly ideologies. Uh, My system comes out of a different world. This world that Jesus referred to is uh, the kingdom of God or the reign of God, or as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven. There's a certain type of way, a certain type of ethic, a certain type of uh, operation that the kingdom of God uh, has that this world does not have. There's a way of living, of understanding, of seeing the world that is completely different than the ways that are in the world. And so Jesus is saying, my kingdom did not come out of this world. It's coming from a different world. But it's intended to actually be lived out and practiced in uh, obviously, Friday, we have Good Friday, and then we have Easter Sunday. Uh, really looking forward to celebrating with you all next weekend. Uh, and as I said, if we want to understand the narrative of Holy Week from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, uh, we need to understand how the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to inaugurate and set up, and he himself entered as king, actually pushed against the kingdoms of this world. We're going to look at the beginning of the week, and then we're going to look at the end of the week and talk about what happened. Uh, And so in the beginning of the week, Palm Sunday, Jesus uh, has, up until this point, created quite a large following. I mean, you go around, uh, you know, preaching the kingdom of God. He's healing people. Uh, You know, there's there's quite a bit of uh, popularity that he's amassed, and he has a big following, people that are curious. Uh, Even people that aren't sure about him are curious enough uh, that they're paying attention to him. And so Matthew 21 um, describes Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Uh, And it says, as they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this quotation from Matthew 21 is actually taken from Zechariah uh, chapter 9. And Zechariah chapter 9, just to uh, rewind and go back into your, your scriptures, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. And so we, we see this, this contrast that the king is coming. God's king, God's Messiah is coming, and he's victorious. But then it's contrasted with this view, uh, as John said earlier in our worship set, that the expectation was that this king would probably come in on some kind of horse or a war horse with a chariot, uh, but he doesn't come in that way. He comes in riding on a donkey, uh, even the foal of a donkey. And so we can picture this animal being uh, quite small. You can actually picture Jesus dragging his feet in the dirt uh, behind the donkey. Uh, that's probably the size of it, uh, how, how, that, how big that donkey would have been. And, and you would look at that picture and be like, this is odd. This doesn't look like the picture of a king. Uh, Zachary continues, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will proclaim shalom to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from, river and, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this was the proclamation in Zechariah, the, the Messiah, the king, that, that the Jewish people were waiting for that was going to show up, and the result of him showing up was going to be nothing less than shalom. The kings were going to proclaim peace to the nations. The battle bow would be broken There would be rule from sea to sea. It wouldn't just be this regional thing, but it would be this universal, global thing to the ends of the earth. And so this is what Zechariah prophesies, and this is what Matthew and the other writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them refer to this, um, are saying this is what is happening in the moment when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. It's the fulfillment of what Zechariah was prophesying. It continues, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, I want you to pay attention, uh, that's why I highlighted, to what the role of the crowd is on this part of the story. We'll contrast that with later. Um, And so a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And the word Hosanna means save us. They were looking to the Messiah to save us. They're quoting here uh, again, actually from the Old Testament, from Psalm uh, 118. And, and so they were echoing the Psalm 18, the hope of Psalm 118, uh, of this king, of this Messiah that was going to come and save us. Uh, so Hosanna, son of David, come and say us. When, when Jesus ent- entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so this is the beginning of the week. All these expectations were on Jesus. We need to remember that the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, were being oppressed. They were under the Roman rule. Jesus was born into an oppressive system, into an enslaved people. They had hopes and dreams for what Jesus was going to do. This is the backdrop. Uh, and so, so they were excited. They, the crowd was, uh, was ready for change. So that's Sunday. A short while later, on Friday, this is what we see happen. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, speaking of Jesus. For I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders 
persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the king? Pilate asked. Then all answered. The crowd answered. Luke, where Matthew says they all or all the people, uh, the gospel of Luke refers to them as the crowd again. Uh, The crowd says, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they all shouted the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead of an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Puts it back on the crowd. All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, there's so much in that text that I would love to preach on, but we don't have time to get into it. But uh, the only thing I want to highlight here is that at the beginning of the week, the crowd was so excited to have Jesus come to Jerusalem. They saw him as the Messiah. They saw him as the king. They saw him as their deliverer, the one who was going to come and save them. And then by Friday, the whole crowd had turned. The whole population had turned. Jesus went from being celebrated to being crucified. He went from being the hero to the enemy in five days. And so what happened? What happened in those five days? What's going on in the backdrop of that context and that scene that would cause such a drastic turn? Well, as we mentioned, the Jews had been under occupation and oppression for a long time. Since 586 B.C., they had been under some form of oppression, whether it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, or the Romans. Uh, They were always seemingly under the oppression of other nations. They were never free. They wanted to be free. They wanted to live in their own land, the land that God promised them that they were going to have. And it seemed particularly wrong to them at this point in history because they were under the oppression of this pagan nation of Rome in which the ruler of the nation, Caesar, referred to himself as divine Caesar. He saw himself as God. And this was offensive to God's people. This was offensive to people that understood themselves to be chosen, that God actually chose them for a purpose, chose them to rule, to reign, chose them to be blessed so that they could be a blessing. And then they looked at their history over 700 years of being oppressed from one nation to the next. And they're questioning, where is God in all this? What happened to the prophecies? What happened to the promises of what God was going to do? And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and they think finally that this is the moment that they've been waiting for, that their ancestors were waiting for, that the generations have been longing for. And, and, and so this posture of waiting for hundreds of years, understanding that they were God's people, that they were chosen, that there was these prophecies that had been spoken, that God was going to send a Messiah and a deliverer, and he was going to save them. And so in this time of waiting, you have a religious people in a political system, and that waiting and that tension that they lived in elicited all sorts of responses and postures. And so different groups started to form in that waiting. Different groups started to have different ideas for what 
uh, it meant to wait for God to show up. As a religious people in the middle of a political system, what did it look like to be God's people being in the world, but not of the world? And there was actually four primary groups that formed over those years, trying to deal with that waiting, trying to deal with that tension. Uh, The first group was a group called the Zealots. Everybody say Zealots. The Zealots were Jews who believed that the only reason that God hadn't shown up yet was because uh, they were a, a cowardly people that they hadn't stepped out in faith, that they didn't have enough faith. They remember stories from their past, you know, stories like when David defeated Goliath, when Gideon defeated the Midianites with only 300 men. You know, they had these faith stories, and they would would tell themselves, the only reason that God hasn't shown up is because we haven't done our part. If we would show a little bit of faith, if we would show a little bit of courage, if we would step out and we would fight against Rome, even though they're way more powerful than us, We have an all-powerful God on our side, and he would honor our decision to step out and to fight back. If we would have the courage, if we would rise up and rebel, God would give us victory. If we would just slit a few Roman throats, we would see that God is on our side, not on that side, and then he would deliver us. And so the zealots kind of formed over time in this period of waiting, uh, and their whole posture was to revolt, to rebel, to fight back, to fight fire with fire, to fight sword with sword. Our God is a warrior. He's going to reward our courage if we step out in faith, and he will raise up a Messiah within us when we respond to his cause. So this, as we could understand, would be one of the postures of the groups uh, of, of Jews that were waiting for this Messiah to come and trying to figure out how to live in that time of waiting. A second group that kind of rose up, and they're kind of two groups, um, but they're, they're, they're part of the same posture as the Herodians and the Sadducees. I'm going to refer to them as the Herodians for simplicity. Um, the Sadducees was more of a religious angle, and the Herodians more of a political angle, but they had the same posture. Uh, and Herod was the Jewish king. Uh, he was kind of a puppet king that was put in place by Rome. Uh, and so he, he kind of served to keep the Jewish people in check to, uh, to rule on behalf of Rome. Uh, and they thought the zealots' approach was all wrong. <clears throat> they knew that to fight against Rome would be, would be suicide. Uh, they, they were thinking, you have no idea how powerful Rome is. To rebel uh, is actually to write your own death sentence. Resistance is futile. You're going to be crushed. Let's cooperate and let's make the best of our situation The Herodians were the Jews who believed if you can't beat the powers, then you should join them. And maybe this is God's way of looking out for us. If we kind of align ourselves with Rome, we kind of play along with the narrative and the game. If we can assimilate and we can actually have a position in the society and not be seen as other than but part of, uh, then God would maybe bless us as we aligned ourselves with Rome. The ends will justify the means. We just compromise uh, a little bit. And so the Herodians, uh, their thought, their posture was to reinforce, to reinforce what was, to reinforce the agenda of Rome and Herod, uh, to be Herod's champion, his representatives in the Jewish community. And the last thing they wanted was to disrupt the waters and make things worse 
for themselves because they might be booted out of Rome or, or, uh, or worse, they might be killed. So it just made sense for them, play along, uh, go along with Herod, go along with Rome. Uh, God will bless us in the midst of that. So that was the group number two. The, the third group that kind of arose in that time of waiting uh, for the Messiah was the Essenes. The Essenes thought the Zealots and the Herodians were unenlightened. The only way to please God was to leave the corrupt and religious and political systems that were existing in the Roman Empire and create an alternative society outside in the desert. They were Jews who believe everything in our world is too far gone. It's unredeemable. And if God is going to do something, it's not going to be within the system. It's going to be apart from the system. Uh, We've been compromised as a people. So let's go back and revisit the desert. Remember, even though the desert was a hard time in our past, the desert was the place uh, in our history where God's people were formed and brought to himself. So maybe we return and we go back to the desert, uh, then he will, he will bless us again, then he will meet us again. And so the, the Essenes' posture was to retreat, to get out of here. The Essenes believed that a physical separation was necessary for God to show up. If we could physically separate from the empire, from the political systems, from the corrupt religious systems, then God would bless us and save us. And then the fourth group were kind of developed and arose uh, in this time of waiting uh, was a group uh, called the Pharisees, and you're probably most familiar with this group because they play quite a prominent role uh, in the gospel narratives. Uh, the name means separated one or holy ones, and so if the Essenes wanted to separate physically, Uh, The Pharisees wanted to separate morally, spiritually, and relationally. Uh, There's about 6,000 Pharisees in the first century when Jesus showed up on the scene. Jesus himself probably stood closest uh, to the Pharisees. Sometimes he was confused as being a Pharisee. He's referred to as as a rabbi because he came within that religious system as a rabbi. Uh, But as we'll see, he didn't really fit the mold. And so the Pharisees wanted to separate morally. Their, their thought was the reason that God hasn't shown up to bless us, the reason that uh, he hasn't sent the Messiah, that he's not saving us, is because we're morally corrupt. We've been compromised morally. We've actually taken uh, the moral agenda of, of Rome. Uh, we need more rules. We need more laws. We need to make sure that we are as holy a people as possible. And when we become more holy than our holy God will show up and honor that holiness. And so uh, the Pharisees' agenda was to reform, to reform the Jewish nation. If people would just become more holy, more righteous, if we could return to a greater obedience to God's word and his commandments, then the Messiah would come and finally God would redeem us and save us. If we were more righteous and we had less sinners among us, that would be the answer. So while the Essenes wanted to separate physically, the Pharisees wanted to separate themselves morally. And so you had these four groups, the Zealots, the Herodians, the Essenes, and the Pharisees. The Zealots looking to revolt, to fight back, 
the Herodians not wanting to disrupt anything and just to reinforce the status quo because that was the best way to survive. The Essenes who just wanted to escape and hide because everything was too far gone. They didn't have a sense of optimism. And if God was going to do something, he was going to do something outside of the systems of the world. The Pharisees who were not focused on fighting the Romans out there, but focusing, the, or focusing on fighting the unholiness in the religious community. And as I look at the crowd in the Passion Narrative and Palm Sunday, I can't help but reflect on these four groups and think things aren't that much different today. Not much has changed. I think in some ways, we all probably tend to lean towards one of these four postures. We're not that different than the time that Jesus entered the world where the people were longing for change, where people were saying, this isn't right. Something's not right in the world. God, where are you? We're desperate for you. Show up, bring shalom. We actually have so much more in common with that first century world than we sometimes realize. Now, I want to pause for a moment at this point before I continue and just ask you to reflect on those four groups. I'm going to give you a minute, uh, and I want to ask you a question. Uh, If you were to align yourself with one of those four groups, which one would it be? I mean, I know we've talked about them in a negative light, but we can understand why they got to those, the places that they were in, in those places of longing, of waiting, when they're trying to sort out their, uh, their faith with living in this world. And so if you're honest with yourself and just your own heart posture, and you think, if I were living in that time, and I was waiting for the Messiah, and I didn't know where he was, I didn't know how the story was going to unfold, which group would I most likely have found myself in? Just take a minute. All right. Let's practice a little bit of vulnerability here. Uh, How many of you guys would have been like, uh, I probably would have been one of the zealots? How about, how many would have been the Herodians thinking, uh, let's just bide our time and, and not disrupt anything and uh, just kind of live within the system until, uh, until God shows up? Okay. Uh, how about the Essenes? How many of the response would have been, we got to get out of this. Let's go create a different world. Yeah. Uh, what about the Pharisees? Okay, the problem's in the church. If God's people just get it together. So then we should move on to the next question and then ask ourselves uh, if Jesus were to locate himself, where would he locate himself? Where is Jesus situated in these options? And if you looked at his life and his teachings, he talks a lot about the kingdom of God, which kind of pushes against the kingdom of Caesar. So maybe he's a zealot. But then Jesus talks about loving your enemies and even praying for them. So he can't be a zealot. He goes to spend time in the desert and he's praying and, and he seems to be, uh, you know, have, have these introverted moments and maybe he's like more like in a scene. But yet every time he goes out to pray, he always comes back and is dealing with the authorities, either political or religious authorities. So he couldn't be in a scene. He's definitely not a Herodian. All the talk about the kingdom of God would surely rub 
the authorities the wrong way, and Herodians would have felt uncomfortable around him. Maybe he's a Pharisee, but then you observe him, and you recognize that his most ruthless teaching, his most challenging teaching, is not to the morally suspect individuals in society, but to the religious elite. He tells the Pharisees that they're not going to enter the kingdom of God, and the prostitutes and drunks are going to enter the kingdom of God before them. So probably can't be a Pharisee. So you try and figure out where Jesus lands, and in some ways he agrees with the zealots and the self-righteous Pharisees against the Herodians because he doesn't think that the status quo is okay. He thinks that it's wrong and that there sh- and it shouldn't be accepted, that we shouldn't go along with it. He agrees with the Pharisees and the Herodians against the zealots that the, that the solution isn't to become more violent and to fight the uh, sword with the sword and to try and overthrow the Romans. That isn't his posture either. Yet he strongly disagrees with the Pharisees that you can't scapegoat prostitutes and drunks and blame them for our problems, and you must view all people as God's beloved children. There's so much unclear when you start to peg who Jesus is and where he lands in the religious political world. But something is clear that Jesus offers over and over again this different vision, this different different dream that he refers to as the kingdom of God. Uh, more literally the reign of God, and he's saying it's actually at hand, it's here, it's entering into the world. There's a different alternative than the ones that you're choosing to see, to seek, to receive, and to enter a new political and social and spiritual reality that I refer to as the kingdom of God. So, and if you're part of this kingdom, you're not going to slit Roman throats like the zealots. If they hit you on one cheek, you're going to turn to them the other. You're not going to curse the damn notorious sinners and the least of the society. You're going to act lovingly and you're going to serve them and go out of your way to treat them uh, and and recognize the the image of God in every human. You're not going to be blindly patriotic and compliant like the Herodian and the Sadducees. Instead, you're going to be willing to to confront the injustice even if it means your very own life. Jesus didn't fit in any religious or political box. Now, there was a guy named Emile Turkheim, and he was a French philosopher, sociologist in the 18th century, and he grew up as a Jew, uh, but he became an atheist in his later life. Uh, And so he found the idea of people that would believe in God. um, he, he, He didn't understand how people could come to believe in God. And he wanted to understand where people got their concepts of God and how people would come to believe in God. And as he traveled around the world, uh, he recognized that everywhere he went, there was belief in God. And, and so he gave time to studying this uh, and recognized you can't find a society that doesn't have a God. Uh, and the way that God is defined changes from culture to culture, from society to society. Uh, but he took a special interest in, uh, in Aboriginal, different Aboriginal groups in Australia, uh, and he kind of used them as a paradigm for understanding how belief and faith develops. Uh, so remember, this is coming from an atheist kind of philosophical background, a soci- sociological background. Uh, and, he, and he recognized that in stage one, uh, that the different groups and people developed traits and values that were unique to them as a people, as a society, as a group. Everybody has traits and values of, that are unique, and every group has traits and values that make them unique. And part of our human nature is to try and figure out what makes us corporately unique than other us's in the world. Uh, and so stage one is, is like this articulation of who we are as a group. The stage two, uh, this group 
uh, in these Australian Aboriginal cultures would come up with an animal to represent the characteristics of that tribe, uh, that group of people. Uh, And they would uh, come up with what is referred to as a totem. So totems would be their representatives as a people. And so if they uh, were strong, often they would like pick like a picture of like an ox that would represent their strength. Or if they were, they view themselves as really wise and learned, they would, they would maybe have an owl. Um, if they were sly as a fox, uh, a, you know, then maybe the fox became their, their totem. Or maybe they're really swift, uh, you know, and so they pick a deer. You know, you get the idea. So they pick these animals to represent who they were, their uniqueness as a people. Uh, and then the third stage uh, that Durkheim observed was that little by little, as time went on, people started uh, not only uh, recognizing that they themselves were represented in these animals, but they almost disassociated from these animals in some way, and they became this mystical type figure. And culture after culture began to worship these totems themselves. They would set up totems. They would set up these, these physical towers that would represent these animals. And then these animals, these totems, actually became the place where they would go and worship. And if the animal is nothing more than a symbolic representation of their traits, their values, their uniqueness, then uh, what Durkheim concluded is what they're really doing is worshiping themselves. And so Durkheim kind of has us here philosophically, and he says that religion and faith is nothing more than a group of people worshiping themselves, worshiping their own ideas, worshiping their own collective ideologies. He found it so offensive that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't understand a way around that. that. That's what he saw religion and faith as being. Uh, Voltaire, critiquing Christianity in the 18th century, said the same thing. More succinctly, he said, if God has made us in his image, then we have returned him the favor that we've made God in our image. But perhaps they didn't realize what Christianity truly was. This is my take. A Christian means little Christ. That's what the name Christian actually means. Christianity is simply the mimicking of Jesus instead of the patterns of this world. And so speaking of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality as God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. The Greek word there is kenosis. I'm going to come back to it in a second. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a phenomenal passage of Scripture, one of my favorites. And as we read this, it almost reads like God stopped being God for a little bit, for a certain point in history. That he stepped, he gave up his rights as God, and he stepped down into human, in the human world, gave up uh, and died the the, sin, the criminal's death on the cross. Uh, so he left God's privileges for a while, but now he's God again. But we know that Jesus didn't stop being God. In Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the exact representation of God. When the uh, Jurgen Moltmann. Uh, the theologian says, when the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the meaning is that this is God and God is like this. The word kenosis means a pouring out, 
an emptying out. That Jesus empties himself. He pours himself out for the sake of the other. What if kenosis isn't the exception of what God is like, but it's the most clear articulation of what God is like? Kenotic love, to use the word in that form, is what God is like. And Resurrection Sunday that we're going to celebrate in a week from now is proof that at the end of the day, canonic love, not violence, not power, not politics, not escaping, not fighting, not money, not economies will have the last word. Canonic love, as we see most clearly on Good Friday, is affirmed as the way of the kingdom of God on Easter Sunday. And so then we're tempted to think, well, that's just how God acts. But now that God's done that for us, we can go along with life. But lest we forget, uh, I didn't quote all of Philippians 2 because the verse right before that whole section says what? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he goes on to explain how Jesus lived. What Paul is saying here is that the victory of the cross will be implemented by the means of the cross, that suffering was the means of its victory, and it still is. Now, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not out of this world, this is what he's referring to, that the way that the world acquires influence, power, change, is completely upside down and opposite from the way that the kingdom of God does. The kingdom of God actually advances through agape love, through self-sacrificial love, and it looks like Jesus. Now, at the very beginning of the Shalom series, we talked about our relationship with God, and we said we become what we behold, and this is why worship is so important, why the God that we worship is so important, because the God that we worship will shape who we become as people. So if you're worshiping a totem, your own desires, a worldly agenda a political or religious ideology, we are essentially becoming increasingly stuck in our worldliness. If we think that a left or right political agenda is the answer and we're giving our affections and our energy towards whatever that might look like, we will increasingly become more worldly in that sense. And I'm not against religion or politics. That's what happens when people collectively come together But as soon as we give our allegiance to a certain ideology instead of the ideologies of Christ and the kingdom of God, we're actually now working against the kingdom of God. And this is where Durkheim, I think, missed it. And Voltaire missed it. Because if we truly understand Christianity, if we're worshiping a crucified God, then we will not live out the worldly systems We will not actually project our ideologies back onto God because God in Christ is the self-emptying, self-sacrificing, loving posture. That's what we see. We will refuse to take the pathway of the, the zealots or the Essenes or the Pharisees or the Herodians. We won't do it because Jesus never did it. We're not going to buy into a cheap narrative that kingdom of God can come through the kingdoms of this world, but we're going to follow a God who is willing to give up his divine privileges and rights for the sake of the other. 
They recognized correctly, Durkheim and Voltaire, recognized correctly that religion can be a mask for worshiping yourself or a worldly or political ideology. But what they didn't realize was that Jesus is the image of God and you can't truly worship that image of God and cling to your own ideologies or motives or agendas. The most common response when we talk about the kingdom of God was, that doesn't sound practical. If I follow Jesus... How would that practically work? If I turn the other cheek, uh, we were doing the Discovering Sunwest class, we were talking about the posture of nonviolence, and they said, how does that even work? Um, and it isn't practical in the worldly sense. Jesus following the kingdom of God actually got him the cross. And so we don't actually follow the kingdom of God because of how practical it is in the worldly sense. We follow the kingdom of God because it's the only kingdom that will endure for all of eternity. And so we can live in whatever the consequences of that means today, knowing that resurrection has the final word. I want to invite you to stand with me. I think we're entering into a time in history where these types of conversations and ideas and questions aren't just theoretical anymore, uh, but they, they're starting to have huge implications for how we live, for how we respond, for how we talk, for how we engage in social media, for how we understand our role in a community, in a city, in a nation. And Jesus invites us to lay down our political and religious agendas and to follow him. And for the zealots, it meant one thing. For the Essenes, it meant another thing. For the Pharisees, another thing. For the Herodians, another thing. And depending on which way you lean, following Jesus is going to mean giving up certain postures and ideologies. Because Jesus is bringing a kingdom that is not out of this world. So Jesus, we thank you that you revealed heaven to us, that you revealed the ways of heaven to us. Lord, I pray no matter what our leaning is, and some of us in this room Um, can echo the postures of those different groups in the first century. Lord, we don't want to project our own agendas onto you. We don't want to actually leave you. The people that had expectations on you that weren't your expectations actually didn't bend their knee to you as king. And so, Lord, we want to hold our political and religious views loosely And we want to cling to you as king firmly. May you give us the courage to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think God is ignorant of the fact that uh, we live in a certain time and space and culture uh, right now, wherever you are. Uh, And that's no different than when Jesus came in that first century world. Uh, In fact, uh, you could actually go through the disciples and you could probably see which political posture some of them had. Uh, You look at Peter, and he reflected more of a a zealot kind of posture. Uh, Some people think John the Baptist was was part of the Essene movement. Uh, You look at Matthew, who's a tax collector. He would have been in line with the Herodian uh, posture. 
Uh, you look at uh, Saul or Paul, uh, you know, he definitely would have been in the Pharisee uh, side of things. And so you can look at the followers of Jesus and you recognize they came from a certain world. And even within our community of Sun West, you know, in our community, we have politicians, uh, we have police officers, we have, uh, you know, school teachers and people that work in the education system, the health system. And, and, and the question is, what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God, the reign of God, wherever God has you? In fact, in Matthew um, chapter 5, Jesus said this, you are the salt of the earth, but the salt loses its saltiness. And how can it be made salt again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown on trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. The town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And Jesus is saying as people who are part of the kingdom of heaven, this future kingdom that is invading earth, he's saying you have the job to be salt of the earth and light of the world. And you think about what salt does, salt preserves and gives flavor. And so wherever you find yourself, find what is good. Find what is in alignment with the kingdom of God and preserve it, champion it, and give flavor to the world where you are. You're the light of the world. What does light do? It helps people see in a world of darkness. By the way that you live, by the way that you love, be a foretaste, a foreshadow of a different type of kingdom. Don't play into the narratives and the dynamics, the scapegoating that's happening in our world. Be a different type of person because you come from a different type of kingdom. And so I want to pray for you uh, as you go and you follow Jesus wherever you're at. Uh, and if you would like wisdom on how to maybe live that out uh, in your current context, we would love to pray for you. We've got prayer teams at the front. Uh, I know this is not always easy to figure out what does it le- mean to live as a c- citizen of the kingdom and, and be a citizen of this world. So God, again, we thank you that you've called us. Thank you that you've empowered us. I pray that you would give us faith and courage to be salt and to be life, that we, that we would preserve and give flavor to the places we find ourselves, that we would be a foreshadow of your kingdom, that when people see us and then they look at the darkness of the world around us, Lord, that we would be a picture, an image, a reflection of the beautiful kingdom of Shalom that you're inviting us to live into now. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for coming. We'll see you on Friday at 10 a.m.